Okay, I requested this song. Um, it's originally by Jesus Culture. And uh, I told Caleb, I said, Jenna can sing that song, man. She's got, the, she's got the pipes. She can do it. I love this song. I can't hardly sing it without getting all broken up. <laughs> Whenever I, I think about what God has done in my life, and when I ask you to pray for me um, this afternoon as I uh, share with my family at my aunt's funeral, I really mean pray, because I have a lot of family members who are not saved, who are not Christians. Um, and they know me, and they knew me as a 15-year-old kid who had put his feet on a pathway that was going to ultimately end me up in prison until God intervened and rescued me from um, a life that was just heading in the wrong direction. And, and now I know when I got saved, uh, most of my family who were not Christians at the time, uh, several of them have become since then, but many, most all of them were not. Um, they all, I, heard, I heard rumors and I heard comments like, well, we'll see how long that lasts. So here I am 42 years later, still telling people about Jesus, and I'm going to shout it from the rooftops till I draw my last breath, and so they're going to hear about Jesus today. So please, yeah, please, please, please be in, in prayer that God opens their eyes and their hearts and be receptive uh, to the good news of Jesus. So if you have a Bible with you, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Two passages I'm going to be looking at, Genesis 3 and Psalm 32 uh, this morning. I uh, originally was not going to preach this message, so I, I switched it up on Caleb. It's not his fault, it's mine. But anyways, uh, I like to do that to worship guys, keep them on their toes. Helps their prayer life a lot. So... Uh, but I, what I want to talk about is really as we are uh, kind of facing a brand new year, 2019, and a brand new series that I want to start on hearing God's voice, I think this message will kind of help set us up for um, that series. And the title of the message is Self-Destructive Things That Everyone Does. So as we face a, a new year, um, a lot of people spend a lot of time making New Year's resolutions and I know some people say, well, you know, they get a little uppity about it. Like, well, I don't make New Year's resolutions. I just set goals. Okay, well, if you set goals or make New Year's resolutions, I could almost bet that you don't keep either one of them, right, in 2019. And so for most people, uh, next year will be just like last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. And we're going to have the same old fights with worries and fears and habits and addictions and struggles that we promised that we're going to get better at and we were going to resolve and it was going to be better next year and then the year after that and the year after that. We find ourselves struggling with the same old issues or maybe you're still rehearsing in your thought process the same old negative things that you've been thinking uh, all of your life, maybe part of your life or maybe over the last several years or maybe you're dragging around the same emotions of anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. And every year, you know, I, I need to get rid of that. I need to un upload that and, 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 you know, get it off me. Uh, and so, Lord, I, I'm, I'm telling you I'm going to do better this year. And here's going to be my approach. And we make promises to God. And, and we don't keep the promises. And we find ourselves doing the same things, having the same emotions and wrestling with the same traumatic events that maybe happened to you as a child that, again, has lodged itself into your emotional system, to your thought processes. And so year in and year out, we want to be better, we want to do better, and we make resolutions to do better and to be better, only to find out that we're not changing at all 
uh, but maybe a little. And so then there are those who come along and say, well, that's why I don't make any New Year's resolutions and I don't make any goals. I don't make anything because you know why? I'm going to hit that every time, right? So <laughs> you know that your life in 2019 is going to be just like it was in 2018 and the years behind that. So unless we uh, come to understand a very self-destructive cycle that we find ourselves in, uh, we really don't know how to um, disengage from those things that seem to trip us up year in and year out. So that's kind of what I want to discuss today. What is that self-destructive cycle that we as humanity find ourselves in? Where did it start? How did it begin? Why did it happen? And so that's why we're going to start in Genesis 3, because this is where it all unfolded uh, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they you know, committed sin against God. And so, you know, Jesus warned us that the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so one of the things God, that Satan wants to steal is your joy. He wants to kill your trust in God, and he wants to destroy you by destroying your mind, by setting up what is the Bible calls strongholds, which are basically fortified cities or fortified walls in your thought processes that keep you engaged in the same thoughts you had yesterday that you're having today that you're going to have tomorrow. You have 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day, and 80 to 90% of those thoughts are thought, same thoughts you had yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And this is why it's so difficult for us to break out of this self-destructive cycle that we find ourselves in if we, we don't understand how to do that. And so we're going to kind of uh, map that out a little bit today. And so the one of the one of the thoughts that I, I really want to um, what I really want to tackle today, and it's, it's one lie that a lot of people believe, and, and, and so I'm just going to use this lie as an example as how that lie gets wrapped into this destructive cycle and pattern of thoughts uh, that governs and controls our lives. How do we break that, dismantle that? And, and tear that stronghold down, and you can take what you're going to learn today, and you can apply it to any lie that the evil one, that, that Satan is trying to get you to believe and to live your life by. Although, even though it is a lie, you think it's truth. In your mind, and your emotions, you don't know any different, and you think, well, this is just normal thinking. These are just normal feelings. And so here's the big lie that I want to tackle, and it's this. The lie is, I cannot be completely known and completely loved. Or, I'll put it this way, I, can, I cannot be fully known and fully loved. Now, one of the reasons why this is a lie is because it's a lie, right? So the reason we, we struggle with this is because we think to ourselves, well, you know, uh, I know the real me, <laughs> Uh, my wife knows the real me, but even she doesn't know the real, real me. And we all know that there are thoughts that roll around in our heads that we would be thoroughly ashamed of and embarrassed if, any, if, if, if they were thrown up on this screen and you could see my thoughts throughout the course of a day. Or we know that we have habits that we are engaging in, uh, that we're hiding and, and concealing from others. And, and we know that there are feelings and emotions that we struggle with day in and day out. It might be things like jealousy and envy and anger and all these, uh, again, these things that we make New Year's resolutions around uh, that we carry with us year in and year out 
and we're trying to do better and want to be better, but we're just not really sure how. And so um, we think, and lodged in our thought processes is, well, if this person really knew the real me, there's no way they could love me. There, there's no way that, and so what does Satan do with this? Even in your relationship with God, before I had a relationship with Christ, right, I wasn't looking for God. Quite frankly, I, I enjoyed my sin. Uh, I, I enjoy, if, you cut, if you cut me off in traffic, I enjoyed giving you the bird. If you crossed me, I enjoyed cussing you out. If you, you did, whatever it was I was doing, I enjoyed it. Sin is fun. If it wasn't, nobody would do it, right? So I enjoyed those things, but they were putting my feet on a path that was leading to self-destruction, and it wasn't until God came and sought me out. I wasn't seeking out God. God sought me out through a variety of events and through a, a various groups of people or individuals whom God used to help bring me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I thought to myself, and, and as, you know, as I was hearing you know, the gospel being explained from time to time, I'm thinking, but man, there's no way God could love me. There's no way God can accept me. These people don't really know. I mean, they know some stuff about me, but they don't know the real me. Man, they don't know what goes on behind the scenes in my life. And so I, you know, I, I bought that lie, and I swallowed that lie, and I lived by that lie for a long time before you know, God's Holy Spirit just kind of broke through that for me. And so here we are with Adam and Eve in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. And why did God create them? Not because he was bored, not because he was lonely, because God is love. And that's what, lo that's what God wanted to express his love. So he creates Adam and Eve, puts them in paradise, and gives them rulership over and authority over his creation because God loved them. And God so loved them, he walked with them day in and day out, and he communicated with them, right? He, he spoke with them, and they with him, and it was a, it was a relationship, that's what relationships do. We communicate with each other, right? It's not one-sided communication. It was this love relationship. And so what God invited Adam and Eve to be a part of was the dance of the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that they would engage in this beautiful relationship that God expressed through love. Now, in light of that, you know the story that one tree sat there that God says, you're forbidden to eat of that tree. For the day that you do, you will surely die. Well, Satan understands he has been kicked out of heaven. He's been cast down to the earth. He's established a kingdom. God's put Adam and Eve right in the backyard of their kingdom. And he knows that his only chance is to get them to rebel against God as he had done. And so obviously Satan comes and he speaks and he twists the truth of God's word. And he questions, did God really say as he always does, he, he doesn't like come flat out with a lie against you. He, he, he takes truth, he mixes it with air, and he, he, he kind of twists God's word. And so you know the end of the story. They ate of that tree, and their lives forever changed, as well as the world in which we live. We all get that, right? But here's what I want you to see. Eve looked, she wanted, and she took it. And that's the same temptations that you and I face every day of our lives. Uh, Satan dangles something in front of us. We look at it. Our emotions kick in. Our thought processes kick in. We want it, and so we take it. 
And then we end up experiencing the same self-destructive cycle that Adam and Eve discovered. And it's the same cycle that goes on and on in our lives every single day for all of humanity. Here's number one. What's the first thing that happened to them? They felt shame. They felt guilt. It says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame, guilt, covering. I know in my own life when there was addiction, when there was greed, when there was insecurity, there was shame, there was guilt, there was a, a means of trying to cover ourselves up. I did a series several years ago here called Masquerade. We, we kind of cover up the shame. We cover up the guilt. We want to hide it. That's why they sowed the fig leaves. It's now all of a sudden that which is different between them became a, another source of shame and guilt. And so they, they, they sow the fig leaves. They're trying to cover up their shame. They're, they are trying to, in the next step, out of fear of God, they try to hide themselves due to their shame. And so the cycle goes, there is shame and then there is fear. Notice what it says in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among them trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Like he didn't know where they were. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was I afraid? Because I was naked. And because of my shame and my nakedness, I tried to cover up out of fear. I was afraid. Who told you were naked? And some of us have moments in our lives in which we wish we could get them back, right? You have probably made decisions. You have probably encountered some things and done some things in your life that as you look back over your past, you're thinking, you know what? Why did I do those things? Why was I so stupid? Why did I act in such an irrational way? Why did I allow myself to, to get caught up in, in that addiction or, or whatever it is for you in your life? And so it's even like now, um, if you blow it, like if you like really do something that is sinful uh, and you know it's sinful, what's one of the things you try to do? Out of fear, out of fear, here's the next step, you're going to try to hide it, right? So let's say, gentlemen, that you are perusing on your uh, computer and all of a sudden you come upon some websites that you know you should not be looking at. And it just might be that your computer is the same computer that your wife uses, and therefore, out of that sense of shame and guilt, I know I shouldn't be doing this, and so you looked, you were confronted with a mental picture, and then suddenly your emotions kicked in, I wanted, and so I took it. I kept, I te I kept you know, perusing, I kept going from one site to another. Now, out of the shame and guilt and the fear of being caught... Uh, what do you do? You want to hide it, right? So you're going to erase your browser history so that if your wife logs on the computer, she cannot see what, what websites you have been browsing. Right, does, this, does this sound familiar to anybody? Don't raise your hand. We all do this, okay? It, it's, it, that, it, it can be one thing of many things. But when we know there is a sense of shame and guilt in our lives over things and we're fearful of being found out, we want to hide it. And so that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They, out of fear, they hid themselves in the garden. Uh, as a child, did you ever break something? Not speaking out personal experience here. 
You ever break something and then try to hide from your parents? Like when, like when my mom walked in the bedroom like she wasn't going to see my little feet coming out from beneath the curtain uh, over the window, right? So you're, you're going to hide it. You're going to try to hide from your parents. Why? Because you know that you've done something wrong. And you're fearful of the consequences. You're fearful of the repercussions. And so you're, you're going to try to hide this thing as long as you can. And so then when you finally get caught <laughs> and you've got a choice to make, Okay, you're either going to say, I did it, my fault, or you're going to blame somebody else, right? My sister did it, or sisters. So, so out of hiding, we hide a lot, and so then comes what? Then comes the next step in the cycle of deception. It is justifying. Notice what it says. Um, God says, Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you to eat, not to eat from? The man said to God, the woman, get this pronoun, you, you, you put with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Amen. In other words, God, if you not given me that woman, had I been by myself, I would have never done this, right? It's your fault. I'm justified in my actions. She's the one who made me do it. It's kind of like when you were in school and you didn't want to hand in your homework, right? Your parents confront you because they get a letter from your teacher. So what do you do? You justify, right? Well, that te my teacher just doesn't like me. She's just picking on me. Just picking on me. Our youngest daughter was notorious for not turning in her homework. So we would get a note from a teacher. You know, usually it was at you know, the time when you had to go for a parent conference and uh, we'd get a note, and we would, we would look dead at our daughter, straight in the eyes, and say, is there anything you need to tell us before we go have this meeting with your teacher? No, Mom, Dad, everything's fine. Everything's great. We would get there. What do you think we heard every time? Well, you know, your daughter is such a joy and a delight to have in class, and she will help me do anything. And, you know, she'd be getting really good grades if she would simply turn in her homework. Now, when you go back and re-question her, well, she lost it. She doesn't like me. Or I didn't want to turn it. She was so busy, I didn't want to inconvenience her and turn it in that day. Justifying her behavior. As adults, well, we just kind of magnify that. We, we just get really good at it. Uh, you know, if you were in my position, you would have done the same thing. Hey, if you were married to my spouse, <laughs> brother, you'd be just like me. Uh, yeah, uh, if, you, if you grew up in my family, if you were facing the pressures I, was fa I have been facing, if you had the job I had, if you had to work with the people I work with, you would do the same things. So we, we learn ways to try to justify our actions, or we're going to blame somebody. And this is the last thing. And so God turns to Eve, and of course, you know, she's not going to drop the ball here. And so... Uh, in verse 13, the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It is his fault. It's my parents' fault. It's the economy's fault. It's my boss's fault. My wife, my parents, my teachers, my school, the traffic. Everything escapes our personal responsibility. This is why we stay in the same self-destructive habits 
year in and year out. Because when push comes to shove, we really don't want to take personal responsibility for our actions. James says, why do you pick up the word of God and do not do what it says? That's like looking in a mirror and knowing something needs to change and happen, but you set the mirror down and you don't do anything and you just walk away. And so one of the reasons why a lot of people really don't want to hear God's voice is because they're afraid of what he might say. They are afraid that he may uncover and unearth something in our lives that we know is there. We have been shameful of it. We've been fearful of being caught. We've been hiding it for years. We've been justifying it in our minds. We have been blaming everybody around us as a means of justification as to why we cannot and should not give this up. And we're fearful that the Spirit of God may come and tag us on that and make us deal with it. Okay, don't leave me alone up here. Am I the only one who does this kind of stuff? We all do, and we all struggle with this stuff. And um, yeah, so, so Adam and Eve, you know, over time what happens to you is, is that you will harden your conscience, and you're going to lose the receptivity and the sensitivity to the voice of God in your life. Now listen to me, that is a very, very dangerous place to be. Remember, your enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's wise, he's patient, and he'll wait as long as he needs to for you to deaden that conscience, and then as James says, he's going to bait the trap, and it's going to be baited with something that's going to have a real gravitational pull on you, and when you take that bait... He's going to snare you, and if you're not careful, the consequences of your actions may cause you to lose your family, may cause you to lose your reputation, your job, or maybe even your life. You know, when people ask me, hey, Greg, you know, I'm going to be speaking uh, here in Groveport this, uh, in January at the uh, next opioid um, conference that the city's having um, and sharing my testimony and my walk in that, in that situation of, like, Greg, what, what caused you to get started to use? You know, I, I started out with marijuana, just like a lot, of, a lot of guys my age, and what, but I was very young. What caused you to start? I'll tell you what caused me. Satan baited me in. And he baited me in with a fear of, of never being... If I was fully known, I would never be fully loved. And therefore, I became all things to all people that I might win some as my friends, as my colleagues, whatever else was out there for me. So Donald Goldman wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence. And um, let me just kind of unpack this a little bit, so hang with me. It's really a, a study of the brain, okay, and, and how the brain reacts to certain events in your life. All right, so um, the, in the back of your brain, there are thought processes that really are, are emotionally driven, not intelligently driven. That comes from the neocortex, the front part of your brain is where you make rational 
intelligent decisions, or when you, when you make decisions out of the back of your brain, it's more of an emotional, so it's more of a fight or, or you know, flee kind of reaction based on emotions. For example, if you were taking a hike, let's say down in Hawking Hills, and uh, you're out on the pathway, and all of a sudden a bear comes out on the pathway in front of you. So immediately, immediately, uh, you're, this happens in split seconds, is that the, the, the fight or flight is going to come in. And so either you, know, you, you are going to take that bear on, and you're going to fight, or you're going to run, right? So emotionally... Uh, Man, that, that hits you, and your gut reaction is, I gotta run. I've gotta get out of here. I gotta get away from this dangerous situation. And so you take off and you start running. Goldman says that you, your mind has now been emotionally hijacked, all right? Emotionally hijacked. So let's put this in an everyday context. Let's say you're sitting in a meeting at work, and you've worked really hard on a project, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, discussion is opened up about your project, and somebody makes some very, very critical remarks about your project and about you personally. All right, so what's your gut reaction? Fight or flee? All right, so emotionally, now your brain has been hijacked, and you're probably going to blurt out and say some things, or maybe even do some things that you never thought you would say or do, because you, you are fighting back. And then once it comes out, you know, words are like bullets. You can't take them back. And once it's happened, it's happened, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, who is this person? Why would I do that? Because your mind has been emotionally hijacked. This is the cause behind every fight that a couple has, right? So you're married, and, uh, yeah, so something happens, your spouse does something or says something that triggers a point in you that, that just like, man, anger just like, boom, is like to the surface, and your, your brain now is emotionally hijacked, and so you say things or you do things that you later regret. After you think about it a while, you're like, why in the world did I say that? Why did I do that? I'm, this is bad, this is bad, this is really bad. And so what he goes on to explain is that in the thinking part of your brain, in other words, if you, if you immediately get emotionally hijacked, if you would just kind of what the Bible teaches, pause, and rather than making a gut emotional reaction by saying or doing something, you pause, you do or say nothing. Because you want the emotions to go subside a little bit you want, the, you, you, you want what happened to move to the front neocortex of your brain so that now you make a more intelligent response. Okay, so let's say, for example, let's go back to the bear illustration. What do the experts tell us? Don't run from a bear. They're just going to chase you. And unless you've got somebody with you and you know you can outrun them, run like crazy, man. They're left behind. <laughs> I'm out of there, Right? No, they say you stand your ground, you make as much noise as possible because it's almost like you are fighting, you're confronting the bear, and more than likely they, they will move on. I will say this, if you see a, a mama bear with her cubs, don't do what your pastor did in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and chase after her trying to get her pictures. Not a wise thing to do. 
Fortunately, I could outrun everybody that was with me, so it's good. <laughs> so an emotionally intelligent person would go through this and say, for example, if somebody hijacked you in a meeting, was critical towards you, and say, you know what, um, you know, what was said has just been unfair, it's very, very hurtful, but I'm not going to respond right now, I'm going to collect myself, I'm going to gather myself, and I will either, you know, you may speak to that situation then in an intelligent, more intelligent way with your emotions under control, or maybe later on with the individual. Same way in relationships. So what he goes on to say is you have to break the pattern of making emotionally hijacked decisions so that you can make more intelligent decisions when your emotions are all in an uproar. And he says what this takes is self-control, which is, by the way, a fruit of the Spirit. When I have no self-control, I will constantly make these emotionally hijacked decisions, statements, words, actions that's going to keep me wrapped up in this cycle of deception. Because then when it comes out, I feel shame, I feel guilty, I fear fearful about the repercussions of it, so I'm going to hide it. But if I can't hide it, then I'm going to try to justify it or I'm going to try to blame the situation. Well, honey, uh, I'm really sorry I exploded all over you, but it was a really hard day at work. Man, it was such a stressful day at work, and you can't believe the things I had to go through today. Uh, so, baby, I, you know, I'm really sorry that I did those things. And so what would be more wise is to allow the fruit of the Spirit to kick in and, and to say, pause, breathe. Before I make a statement, before I do anything, let's allow the Holy Spirit to have some time with me, even though that may just be five seconds, ten seconds, whatever, and, and let me respond in a way that's not going to create hurt and shame and guilt and all these other things. Are you tracking with me? All right, so this is so, so important, and when we get to, the, to, the, to breaking the pattern, so... Let me give you an example, a biblical example of someone who was caught up in this self-deceptive pattern. His name was King David. King David is probably as well known for his sin with Bathsheba as anything else that was a part of his life. I mean, if you ask one, if you ask the, the, the average person, tell me what you know about King David. Well, I remember that thing in him in, in Bathsheba. Uh, isn't it amazing how King David, who had some great, great qualities about himself, uh, you know, just, I mean, a man after God's own heart, loved the Lord, um, was a great king as far as, you know, extending the boundaries of Israel and getting the people to worship the Lord and, and fall under his authority and all those things, but there was a, a time in his life when he should have been on the battlefield, but rather he was on the rooftop, and uh, he wasn't up there shouting about Jesus, he was up there viewing a woman who was bathing, and uh, his eyes looked, he wanted, and he took. He sent a servant and said, bring me, bring me the king Bathsheba. And you know the end of the story, right? And so David was emotionally hijacked in his brain. He made a decision, a very quick decision, because 
he was stirred up emotionally, had he paused and said, you know what, before I do anything, I better sleep on this. When he got up the next day, he could have made a much more intelligent decision and certainly would have given God opportunity to say, David, 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 do not do this. You do not want to go down this pathway. It, it, it is only destruction. And the destruction that David not only experienced in his own life was fleshed out in his family. And for generations, they paid for that mistake. And so David, um, what did David do after he, after he engaged in this relationship? Well, uh, there was a sense of shame, right? And so there was fear that kicked in. What if somebody finds out? Because now all of a sudden Bathsheba is pregnant. And so he has the fear, the king, the stately one, has, has now been caught red-handed in a sin. And so he keeps it to himself. He hides it from everyone that he can hide it from. Certainly you can't hide it from God. You can't hide anything from God. And then he's got to hide, you know, the mistake from others. So then he's like, okay, uh, I got to do something about Uzziah, her husband. Let's get him off the battlefield. Let's get him with his wife so that, you know, they'll think she's pregnant from her husband. That doesn't work. Uzziah refuses to go in to be with his wife because he's in battle. So then David does the next step that he thought he would never, ever do. And because this is the, well, this is, this is the way the enemy works. He put, a, he put a bait out there, a snare for David, and said, David, here's what you need to do. You need to send Uzziah out on the front lines and make sure that he is taken out. Great idea. That's what he does. Uzziah is killed. He's snared in the trap. And now all of a sudden, in his mind, he is justifying what he's doing. Maybe he's even blaming. I don't know what's rolling around in David's head, but here's what I do know. For a year, he conceals this. For a year, he is in turmoil. There are two psalms that he wrote in conjunction with this. Psalm 32, what was going on inside of him during that year in which he was hiding this and protecting himself from being found out. And Psalm 51, when God finally sent a man named Nathan to confront him and let him know your secret is no longer a secret. God knows all about it. I know about it. And probably others probably know about it. And so David gives his confession. I want you to go to Psalm 32 because here is what is happening inside of David. It's the same thing that happens to us when we get caught up in a cycle of deception. And because of the way that we're feeling, the things that are going on in our minds, that are going on in our bodies, um, you know, we, we want to write this. We want to try to correct it for the most part, but we're really not sure. So here's what happens. When you're caught up in this self-deception, here are five major strongholds or fortresses that Satan is building in your, in your thought processes, okay? Now, I'm just going to hit these really quick. Self-righteousness. I don't need God's forgiveness. That's what self-righteousness says. I don't need God's forgiveness. I, I carve my own road. Uh, I make my own path. I call my own shots. Uh, this is my life, and I'll do with it whatever I want. That's the fortress, the mental fortress of self-righteousness, self-deception. I don't need to hear from God. I don't want to hear from God. I'm just another guy. Uh, 
I, you know, I can make it on my own. Can you imagine uh, how self-deceived David was during this year that he is trying to contain uh, the fallout of his sin? Number three is self-loathing. I don't believe God loves me. To be loved, you have to be worthy. You have to feel worthy. I don't feel worthy. What has to die is the sense that love has to be earned, right? So you, you, Satan builds you. There's self-loathing going on, self-deception, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. I don't need to seek God's will. Again, I'm the master of my fate. I do what I want. I don't, I don't need to seek God when I'm making decisions. I can, I can navigate my way through this perfectly on my own. And self-confidence, after all, it's all about me. I looked, I wanted, and I took it. And I'm happy with that. Now, here are these mental fortresses. And so um, we, we, we all have a completely natural reaction to, to conflict and problems. And, um, but here's the natural instinct. When you're caught up in self-deception, self-destructive cycle, and these mental fortresses, maybe one of them, two of them, three of them, or all of them are in your thought processes, here's how we respond to this every time. You want to know what we do? We run. We run. And we run as long and as hard and as fast as we can run. And we're going to run, we're going to outrun the problem. We're going to outrun the situation. And so we run from relationship to relationship, friendship to friendship, job to job, house to house, church to church, addiction to addiction. And it, every time it gets too quiet and uncomfortable, we just try to run some more. So here's the life of a runaway. This is bad, you know, this is really bad. I, I, I don't like my marriage, I don't like my relationship, I don't like my job, I don't like my hometown, I don't like this country, I don't like these people, and so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get something new, I'm gonna find something new and better, and so that's the second thing, is this is so much better, man. My, my, man, my, my new wife is so much better than my last wife, and my new husband is so much better. He doesn't have all the old bad habits my last husband had, and this wife, this new wife, she, man, she, she cleans the house better. She, she takes care of me better, and, and so, you know, we, we go through all these things, and so, well, you know, this school is so much better than last school. This house is so much better than last house. This car is so much better than the last car, and on and on we go, and we're running, 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 and then, uh-oh, I see cracks in the armor, right? Now, all of a sudden, I thought she was better than my first wife, but she's really not. Yeah, she's got some really bad habits. I didn't see those initially. He's got some really bad habits. I didn't know that. He would just throw his underwear and socks everywhere. I, I just can't get that. I don't, I don't know, man. He reminds me so much of somebody else I, was, I dated that I hated. How did I get here? And so you hit a wall. See, what you were running after and what you were chasing after in the midst of the cycle of deception, you find out wasn't all that you thought it would be. And when you see the cracks and you hit the wall, you just start running again. And you run and you run and year after year after year after year, it's the same stuff. 
day in and day out. Does that describe your life pretty much? There is an alternative. And so David gives it to us. So let's wrap this up. Um, Psalm 32, look in verse 3. Here's David talking. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped. And so what is David saying? Man, I'm losing weight. I'm physically becoming weaker. I'm feeling the hand of God. I'm depressed. My emotions are all over the place. I'm worried about my future. I'm worried about being found out. I'm worried about so many things. And so now he can't even sleep. You know, and, and so for sometimes when we get into self-deception and there are things that are going on in our lives and the thoughts processes just keep going over and over again and we're trying to run and we're trying to consume and we're trying to fight our way out of this and we can't do it. It's like, you know, it's, it's like be, being put inside some kind of bag and we're trying to punch our way out and we can't get out. And so now we are distracted mentally. We are distracted emotionally. We kind of go to work. We're there, but we're not there. And our, our mental function and capacity is uh, hampered and hindered because our, you know, our thought processes just aren't reliable anymore. And I, now I'm susceptible, I'm open and susceptible to even greater temptations because I, I'm an emotional wreck. I'm not making intelligent decisions. I'm making emotionally driven decisions by and large, and my physical symptoms just seem to keep getting worse. Can sin make you sick? Absolutely it can. And that's what David's saying. He's saying, listen, man, my health was deteriorating. Sin was making me sick as a dog, or as we use uh, terminology like sick to my stomach. Why? Because even the medical field says to us that that kind of stuff that creates so much stress inside of us, because the cycle of deception always creates stress, because you never know when you're going to be found out. You never know when it's going to be uncovered. You never know when your sin's going to come to the surface. You never know what's going to be the end result. And so stress always includes headaches and high blood pressure and heart problems, diabetes, skin conditions, asthma, depression, anxiety. The medical field goes on and on and on and on about how this stuff affects us physically. $300 billion a year is lost by American businesses due to a lack and loss of productivity because of stress in people's lives. If you are a runner, if you are a runner, you think like, I don't have any issues. I'm not the problem. I'm not the issue. It's everybody else. <laughs> so you just keep running. And despite the evidence, the most common response to sin is to deny it and just run. But you don't understand, pastor, it's not my sin. It's, it's my girlfriend. It's my boyfriend. It's my ex. It's my husband. It's my boss. It's my, and on and on we go. You know how many people come to me for counseling, couples, and the husband and wife sits across from me, and the husband looks at me and says, here's the problem. She's it. You fix her. We'll be fine. Can I just reach across the table right now and strangle you? A throat punch you at least? That's not the problem. 
Because we look in the mirror and we choose to run or blame or hide. And so when we have a stronghold inside of us, we see others. It's amazing how we can see in others what's inside of us, but we don't see it inside of us. For example, I've had people sit down and, compl- and complain to me about somebody and, and list out all their complaints about what they don't like about this individual, and every complaint they gave me are the same things they do, but they don't see it in themselves, right? Because we're blind to our own faults and our own failures oftentimes because that's just the way we work. So at the end of the day, it comes down to one thing and one thing only, and this is what it came down for David. At the end of the day, it's just you and God. It's you and God. Now notice what it says in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sins. I will, I will confess what? My rebellion to the Lord, my transgressions, and you forgave and you cleansed me of my guilt. I stopped my blaming. I stopped my denial. I stopped my justifying. I stopped my hiding. I finally came clean with God. I came clean with myself. And God, you responded to me in my confession with the greatest gift of grace that I could have ever experienced. And David says, you, you forgave me. In other words, What David is saying is this, God, all these, all these days that I've been running from you, you've been running after me. You've been running after me. Even though you have fully known me, every fault, every failure, every thought, every sin, everything about me, but you never stopped loving me. That's grace at its finest. And it's why Christ came into the world. So what can you do? Can I just suggest one thing? Stop running. Take ownership of your life, your faults, your failures. Remember, this life isn't about perfection. It's about progress. And you confess it before the Lord And you sit and you listen. You let God deal with you so that he can root out the cause behind what you are doing. Why you're thinking this way. Why you're feeling this way. Because only the Holy Spirit can bring God's healing within you. So I want to leave you reading just one last passage. And I'll let the passage speak for itself. Because here's God's response. And this is found in Romans um, chapter Five, and you, you want to underline these verses because uh, this is an incredible, the Apostle Paul is trying to describe to the, to the Christians in Rome uh, about the grace of God, and there's many different ways that he, he, he tries to make it clear, but here's some of the clearest passages I want, to, I want to leave you with. He says in verse 6, let's look at this very closely, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while you were still fully known, 
When did Jesus die for you? Before the foundation of the world, God had already decided that he would die for you, even though God knew everything about you, every thought that you would have, every deed that you would do, every motive that you would have. God says, I'm still going to send my son Jesus into the world to die and to stand in your place. That's the essence of the gospel. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have joy, we rejoice, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So take this verse, all right, underline it, highlight it, Put it on a card, and every time the enemy brings up the lie, you cannot be fully loved by God because he fully knows you, and he notices a lot of faults, a lot of failures, a lot of blemishes, a lot of really ungodly stuff in your life, and therefore, until you get that right, until you get that cleaned up, until you get that mess taken care of, then God will fully love you. That is a lie of the enemy. We are loved by God because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Listen, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and he came searching for them, what did he do? How did he respond? He responded by taking the life of a third party, an animal, and he clothed them in that, the skin of that animal. And so what did God do for us? He took a third party, an innocent person, Jesus Christ, and he sacrificed him in our place so that he might clothe us in his righteousness so that as God looks upon me, he sees nothing but Jesus. Jesus, his love for me has never changed. And it's never changed for you. That does not mean that God approves of what we do. It just means that if I understand that I, have, I don't have to prove myself to God, I've already been approved through my relationship with Jesus Christ, even though he knows about my addictions and cheating and lying and insecurity and abuse or whatever else that was going on in my life, because I've been clothed in this righteousness, then I have freedom to come to him in confession. Why? Out of gratitude. I'm saying, Lord, I don't want this stuff in my life anymore. It's what Oswald Chambers called the great divide. Until you come to that point in your life in which you are willing to surrender everything to the Lord with no turning back, you will constantly deal with the cycle of self-deception. But when you come to that great divide and that wholesome surrender, then every time sin, lies, whatever comes knocking on the door of my heart, there's an immediate time of confession and the asking of the Lord. This Lord... I don't want anything to rob me of the joy of my salvation. Do you know that's what David wanted more than anything else? In Psalm 51, he said, please, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's my prayer for you for 2019. And a key to that is learning how to listen to the voice of God. Let's bow our heads together.